0: This is an ABC podcast. Hi there, welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This is David Rutledge and it's great to be with you once again. I'm thinking about Anzac Day this week, which is weird because it's not coming up anytime soon. But whenever Anzac Day rolls around, I always find myself thinking about the Anzac myth and the role that it plays in the Australian national consciousness. And by myth, I don't mean some sort of fairy tale like World War One or the Gallipoli landing never happened. I'm talking about the way that the Anzac story has come to be one of those powerful and rather mysterious narratives that function almost like a sacred text for a lot of Australians because of the way that they feel it undergirds Australian identity. And that means that if you criticise the Anzac myth or you get playful with it or subject it to serious historical scrutiny, then you're engaging in some sort of heresy. And for this reason, as we're about to hear, a lot of political theorists are very wary of the role of myth in public life. The relationship between philosophy and myth has had its ups and downs over the centuries. Plato was a myth-maker, and for centuries he was celebrated as such. But with the European Enlightenment, we saw a new and more sceptical re-evaluation of myth, and this resulted in an understanding of philosophy as something very rational and critical and essentially anti-mythological. It's an assumption about the nature and the role of philosophy that's carried over into the modern era, but I'm talking with someone this week who's interested in taking on that assumption. Her name is Taeyun Kum. She's Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and she's the author of Plato and the Mythic Tradition in Political Thought.
1: Myth can be just notoriously difficult to define because it's a really weirdly sprawling category, and hopefully we can talk a bit more about how it's the category or the concept has come to sprawl over the history of the concept. Um, So just to get the discussion started, I think we can broadly distinguish between basically like three overlapping senses of the word myth, uh, which are often deployed in uh, overlapping but largely different contexts. So first, there's a sense of myth in everyday common use, like, I don't know, like five myths about dieting that most people don't know. And uh, so the connotation there is that its uh, myth is something that is like a commonly believed falsehood, but it can be corrected or debunked with a fact. But there's also this idea of myth as a particular literary genre of traditional tales, um, say like the myth of Icarus. Um, And these are traditional stories often featuring a recurring cast of fantastical characters or settings, sometimes with complex interconnected plots. And that's the kind of like pre-enlightenment, more uh, classical meaning of the word myth. And then uh, this is the third sense, and which I think is kind of like the most thorny idea of myth, which is the theoretical concept of myth as it's been developed by more modern theorists of culture and society. And this is where myth becomes a kind of theoretical proxy for a whole bunch of different forms of thought that are understood to operate at the level of deep culture. So thick narratives or frameworks of meaning that somehow inform our worldviews at a very deep foundational level. And that's the point at which Dealing with myths in this sense isn't a matter of simply debunking them with facts uh, because they're somehow a lot more ingrained in a foundational way to our worldviews than would be allowed in a situation where you can just simply debunk a myth with a fact.
0: It's really interesting, isn't it? Because as you've written, there was a period prior to the Enlightenment in Europe where myth was sort of held in higher respect and it was seen as a, a kind of a passport to cultural literacy, if you like. And then with the European Enlightenment, we see a reevaluation of classical mythology. What historical shifts do we see driving that reevaluation as as the new world opens up?
1: As you say, um, I guess like in the period leading up to the Enlightenment, Europeans were largely working with what we would now think of as a, as a Baroque approach to myth as, uh, like you say, a passport to culture was a kind of like a an inherited aesthetic vocabulary that educated individuals had to learn in order to comprehend and participate in high culture. And then around the time of the Enlightenment, a bunch of, I guess, historical and cultural forces begin to come to a head in such a way that the concept of myth uh, starts getting re-evaluated and redefined in uh, in some of the ways that uh, we, we talked about earlier. So, um, Uh, One of the historical factors would be the the quarrel between the ancients and moderns. So the cultural debates surrounding the sort of famous literary quarrel uh, started bringing into question the the merits of the mythological repertory that uh, pervades Greek and Roman literature. So it's all of a sudden, this sort of like timeless, noble, aesthetic inheritance, uh, comes up for a question and it becomes a category of, um, criticism. And then, as you mentioned, um, the, the so-called discovery of the new world, ends up expanding the genre of myth, even from like a purely literary perspective. So from a European vantage point, myth had formerly referred almost exclusively to the Greco-Roman mythological tradition. But now there are all these travel narratives from uh, the Americas, uh, Asia and Africa. um, And these uh, narratives were also bringing new myths into cultural consciousness. And both these factors help consolidate uh, the concept of myth as a category of critical study rather than a kind of like timeless eternal component of the cultural heritage of modern europe and the third kind of like historical cultural factor i might mention was just like the rise of the natural sciences as a distinct category of study and scientific and technological uh, progress starts uh, giving people different ideas about what the passage of time looks like. So in kind of like the the centuries (laughs) leading up to the Enlightenment, we uh, get this uh, gradual breaking away from a more kind of like circular notion of the passage of time to uh, a more linear notion of time uh, and with it these ideas about progress. So again, we have this sort of progressive narrative of Primitive and unenlightened civilizations uh, that believe myths and generate myths uh, on one side of the spectrum. And this idea that as you become more civilized, more like enlightened uh, Europe, you start moving away from the cultural forces or even the forms of thought that are associated with uh, mythology.
0: (laughs) Okay. And so with this narrative of civilizational progress, moving from myth towards enlightenment, you might say, we also see the development of a parallel narrative about the progress of human thought, don't we? Where superstition gives way to a kind of proto-scientific thinking, and ultimately we arrive at a particular understanding of the nature and the role of philosophy. Is that how you see the history unfolding?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, something that, that we, uh, we didn't talk about was this notion that a bunch of Enlightenment thinkers are putting classical myths under the microscope and saying, what is the cause? What is the underlying cognitive cause uh, of these stories? And um, what starts out as a, as a critical project meant to supposedly criticize other cultures also ends up shining a critical mirror to European society as well. So Europe, uh, these Enlightenment uh, thinkers would see, is still full of this superstitious mentality that could um, you know, explode at any point and um, regress back to stages of culture Um that enlightened modern Europe has moved away from. So philosophy becomes this kind of, almost this protective power where uh, being able to exercise uh, criticism, your critical capacity on all aspects of culture is this uh, guiding tool that will prevent the threat of cultural regression that uh, mythological thinking happens to to represent uh, for these thinkers.
0: And so we've inherited that, that way of thinking very much in contemporary philosophy, particularly in political philosophy, where myths are often held to be not just suspect, but actually, in some sense, dangerous. Why is that?
1: yeah so um on the one hand we, we might say it might be quite naive and reductive to look at the enlightenment narrative and still believe in those so it it, it might be naive and reductive to claim, for instance that there's just one way that societies come to be modern or that cultural transformation occurs along this single axis with like primitivism and myth on the one on one end and civilization and science uh, and uh, secularism on the other. But it still bears emphasizing that contemporary political theorists are still very much working with um, inherited notions about what constitutes progress, um, the distinctiveness of modernity, and the extent to which a conception of scientific reason is bound up in both of these ideals. So if we think of myths broadly as uh, narratives that for one reason or another is not amenable to, to critical examination, that doesn't have this kernel of critical thinking that uh, was so important for Enlightenment thinkers, uh, for conceptualizing the identity of philosophy. Uh, So if we think of myths in this way, myths uh, start looking undesirable in politics for a number of reasons. So we might, for instance, say, uh, have epistemic arguments against narratives that resist further scrutiny because... Both criticism and the diversity of alternate opinions are crucial to a democracy, for instance, marked by the free exchange of and competition uh, between ideas. So this aversion to myth and political uh, philosophy is in large part rooted in this position that the promulgating such stories will amount to the obscuring of truths that might be otherwise reached through more democratic and rational channels. We might also have, um, say, deliberative uh, arguments against myths because perpetuating such stories might seem to obstruct deliberative discourse and debate. Um, from a more liberal perspective, we might say that uh, narratives that repel scrutiny of critical scrutiny of, uh, in this way might also seem to erode the integrity and the autonomy of the individual citizen who ought to be free to reason against the grain of uh, that which is merely taken for granted in collective culture. And um, similarly, when a society tolerates or perpetuates narratives that are somehow beyond question in this way, this would also seem to pose an ideal of political participation um, insofar as it seems to encourage passive rather than active citizenship and uh whenever stories like this are mobilized by particular political actors um they seem to make uh citizens vulnerable to the kind of inequality built into the relationship between say the elite creators and promulgators of myth um, and their unsuspecting uh, public um more recently i mean uh, historically more recently than the enlightenment um the probably kind of like the largest self-evident argument against tolerating myths in um in the political sphere was the close association that both uh, Nazi ideologues and commentators who were obviously opposed to uh, the situation uh, drew between uh, Nazi ideology and propaganda and myth. Uh, so from the mid 20th century, myth uh, almost became in certain contexts synonymous with Nazism and fascism. So that also became a kind of like self-evident uh, argument against uh, myth because it's like, look at the unbridled irrationalism uh, that, uh, that rears its head when uh, we begin to tolerate myths in the public
0: sphere. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and this week I'm speaking with tae Kum. She's Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. You're interested in Plato, who's a really interesting figure to bring to a discussion of myth in politics, because on one hand, he's been famously criticised for excessive rationalism. This is the argument that Nietzsche has with Plato, that he's sort of stripped all the mythology away from philosophy, and that's been very much to philosophy's detriment. But then you have someone like Karl Popper in the middle of the 20th century, and at the end of the Second World War, he's publishing his famous work, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And in that book, he identifies one of those enemies as Plato, on the grounds that Plato was a dangerous myth-maker. And we do see, when we look at a text like The Republic, that Plato is incorporating myth at key points there. And this strongly reminds Karl Popper of Nazi ideology, in particular, the myth of the metals. Where Plato has Socrates talk about how citizens are constituted from certain metals, and these metals determine the social standing of those citizens. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah. So, in the open society and uh, its enemies, uh, Popper uh, looks to the myth of metals, and he he calls it an exact counterpart to uh, the myth of blood and soil. So. Um, The Open Society and Its Enemies, as you say, is famously an attack on Plato as uh, someone who somehow prefigures Nazi Germany or injects this terrible poison into the Western intellectual tradition that uh, ends up culminating in the horrors of Nazi Germany. So Popper's notion of an open society uh, versus a closed society The difference between these two societies for Popper is really, uh, for him, a difference in cultures of knowledge. And a closed society, Popper thinks, operates on myths that are simply taken for granted in society, are kind of like passed down from uh, the elite manipulators of myth uh, uh, down to the unsuspecting public. Uh, Whereas uh, a society, an open society with a critical culture, um, uh, has more of a culture of questioning norms that are taken for granted and revising things that are wrong so that uh, progress uh, can be made. And that's the way in which they're open rather than closed, because uh, myths simply preserve the status quo. And uh, Popper thought Plato was uh, the first enemy of the open society. And uh, the myth of metals, as you say, is this paradigmatic example of the lengths that a philosopher like Plato would go just to preserve this, what he called this arrested state, this closed Society that uh, is described in the Republic, and in particular, it's this uh, his recourse to the manipulative powers of myth that's uh, especially distasteful uh, for Popper. But you also uh, mention Nietzsche, uh, who ends up kind of uh, criticizing Plato for the exact opposite reason. So uh, for Nietzsche, Plato is this arch rationalist who tips the balance between the Dionysian and Apollonian elements of culture in an unhealthily one-sided direction. So he's uh, uh, this guy who sets Western philosophy on this unhealthy uh, trajectory where it's, uh, all of a sudden philosophy is somehow uh, decoupled from its mythic roots uh, in a way that uh, Nietzsche finds uh, especially um, uh, problematic, and uh, the contrast between these two extremely famous uh, critiques of Plato is really interesting because it raises the question: What? Well, okay, so like, who, who was right? Was uh, is Plato uh, blameworthy because he steered philosophy away from myth, which is Nietzsche's critique, or is Plato to blame for bringing philosophy closer to myth, which is Popper's uh, critique? And um, And I think this touches on, uh, yeah, just like a really interesting and slightly unresolved tension in the way we think about Plato and his relationship to myth.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And since you've raised it, I'll I'll ask you to answer it. I mean, what is your view here? Because I know that you've written that Plato's use of myth is actually complementary rather than antithetical to his critical reasoning. You've, you've sort of steered something of a middle course between Nietzsche and Popper there. How is that the case?
1: Yeah. So just to step back a a little bit, like obviously Plato uh, wrote these myths into his philosophical dialogues. And, um, when we sort of like subscribe to some of the enlightenment narratives that we've been discussing about the place of myth in philosophy and how philosophy should uh, ideally be this act of purification where we progressively shed myths in favor of uh, more critical, more uh, rigorous reasoning, once we subscribe to that narrative and we also subscribe to this extra narrative that both uh, Popper and um, Nietzsche uh, subscribe to uh, of Plato somehow being the foundation, this almost uh, founding figure for the Western intellectual tradition, then it starts looking quite problematic that Plato wrote these myths. Um, So when we take seriously Plato's uh, decision to um, integrate myths into his philosophical dialogues. And when we start to try to take them seriously as a form of philosophical discourse uh, in its own right, then we start seeing a portrait of Plato uh, where he Uh, viewed the resources of myth as complementary and not antithetical to the kind of critical reasoning that people uh, like Popper and many others have, uh, Enlightenment thinkers, have seen as uh, being a really defining feature of uh, the identity of philosophy. Um, And, uh, Plato uses myth for a whole number of reasons across uh, uh, the platonic corpus, Um, but one use of myth that I'm especially uh, interested in are moments like the myth of metals uh, where the myths appear uh, when interlocutors find themselves sort of grappling with certain imaginative frameworks that are entrenched into the way they uh, relate to their natural and social uh, environments. So in certain situations that I'm especially interested in, myths sort of appear um, as tools for uh, resetting and writing over the way, uh, people imagine certain concepts that are very thickly ingrained into the way, uh, people, uh, imagine, uh, their social, uh, world and just the, the way things, uh, simply are. Um, so, uh, the myth of metals, for instance, we can, uh, talk about more, uh, more deeply occurs at a moment in the Republic where, uh, Socrates and his interlocutors have talked about the education and training that prospective philosopher guardians to be uh, have to be raised in. So the education and the training of, uh, that has to be made available to these ruler philosopher candidates from a very early age. And the myth of metals appears after they have discussed the preliminary training and testing that all the citizens uh, of the Republic have undergone um, and from this pool of citizens, they're going to start sorting uh, the first potential candidates uh, for further uh, philosophical training. And this is where the myth appears. And um, I'll just uh, read out loud uh, how this uh, myth begins. So this is now Socrates speaking. And uh, the myth begins, I'll attempt to persuade first the rulers and the soldiers, then the rest of the city, that the rearing and education we gave them So the rearing and education that these people had already, um, this uh, basic preliminary program in uh, music and gymnastics that are described in books two and three, Um, so this basic cultural and gymnastic education, so that the rearing and education we gave them were like dreams. They only thought they were undergoing all that was happening to them, while in truth, at that time, they were under the earth within, being fashioned and reared themselves, and their arms and other tools being crafted when the job had been completely finished then the earth which is their mother sent them up so and then the rest of the myth goes on to describe like the gold silver um bronze and iron bits of souls uh, that uh, later becomes a justification for the various uh, social statuses that um, various citizens in the Callipolis are to occupy. And that's the stuff that the myth is more famously known for. But in the passage that I just read out really slowly, what's really happening is that Socrates is describing um a gestation followed by a birth. And the process of gestation that is being described is the rearing and education that's been given already, this basic uh, education and music and gymnastics that all the citizens have undergone. So what's happening here is that uh, Socrates and this myth is almost redefining what it means to be born in the first place. So if this is a myth uh, that And this is uh, Popper's uh, reading of the myth as well. If this is a myth that says we need to, we're going to assume that citizens in the city have fixed natures, fixed natural aptitudes that make some citizens more philosophical and some citizens not at all apt for philosophical training, then these natures are going to be the basis for this uh, very rigid class system, which is Popper's definition of a a closed society. But if we sort of like set that aside and like look at the myth closely, what the myth is doing, it's redefining what it means to uh, have a nature that's fixed from birth onwards. So the, the myth is kind of resetting and recalibrating the moment from which you're going to start. Counting your nature. So it's nature, the natures of individual citizens aren't whatever characteristics and qualities that they possess at the moment that they're biologically born. Instead it's the the moment that occurs after um they've completed their this basic training uh, and education uh, that the city has given them, so it's really educated nature rather than biological nature that Socrates in this myth is now putting forward as a as a new working uh, definition of nature.
0: I think that's such an interesting interpretation and on one hand I'm I'm persuaded by it but on the other hand part of me still is, is sort of going with with Karl Popper because Plato has Socrates referred to the myth of metals as what he calls a noble lie. He says it's a, a contrivance for one of those falsehoods that come into being in case of need. And that kind of rings alarm bells, right? Because in, in this, he's quite explicitly saying, or, or he seems to be saying, that there are some falsehoods that need to be propagated by a ruling elite in order to advance some sort of agenda among the masses. And so this arguably points back in the direction of what Karl Popper was writing about, the the pathological or potentially pathological nature of myth when deployed in the political sphere. I, I mean, I, so I, I suppose my question is, what do you think the difference is between Socrates noble lie and what today we would call propaganda.
1: Yeah. Uh, so just to be clear I, I I don't mean to deny that the political arrangement uh, described in the Calypolis is inegalitarian I, I just don't think that that's the the most interesting thing that Plato is up to when he's um using these myths. Um so I guess two things one is um so when Plato is talking about a noble lie, uh, or the character of Socrates is talking about a noble lie, the standard interpretation of this phrase is that it's it's a falsehood. So that's unfortunate because falsehoods are not great for philosophy. But it's a falsehood that serves a noble end, and therefore it's more justified. And one thing to point out here is that Plato actually does believe in Correctness. Um, so uh, if we were to go that route of uh, interpreting that phrase, there is such a thing as something that is objectively more noble for Plato. And that's the thought that Popper is critiquing here, that uh, Popper is saying you can't put any one philosopher or group of philosophers as an authority on what correctness is because they could get it wrong. And uh, where you don't have an an objective standard or a way of knowing an objective standard of uh, what that noble end is, that's when the instrumental use of something dangerous like myth uh, becomes propaganda. Um, but the second thing that I want to point out here is that in Popper's critique, the idea is that the myth, uh, that the noble lie is something that's being cynically deployed by an elite group of philosophers. Um, so they're sort of standing outside the lie or whoever is telling the myth is standing outside the lie, whereas uh, these citizens are being merely duped uh, by, uh, by this falsehood. And, uh the possibility that i want to uh suggest and i suppose my reading of the myth is the idea that philosophers are not standing the people telling the myth are not standing outside the lie uh, so much as they're that they're using the myth to think through something that is uh, on a slightly more egalitarian plane uh, think through something that is of common concern and sort of think with the reader on what it might take to reconsider conceptualize uh, certain uh, foundational frameworks for meaning that are just very thick uh, and densely uh, ingrained into our worldviews.
0: Tayun Kum. She's Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the author of Plato and the Mythic Tradition in Political Thought. And that's it from the Philosopher's Zone for another week. You can stream or download the program, along with all of our past programs, on the Philosopher's Zone website or via the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. If you'd like to suggest a topic or a guest for future programs, or maybe you just feel like yelling at me, then you can find me on Twitter at DavidPZone. Thanks for your company. See you next time.